Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you again for joining us this Sunday morning as we continue to bring you conversations with the brightest minds in the country. And oftentimes I bring my personal closest friends to the mic um, to talk about the work that they're doing. It's not always associated with the work of responsible fatherhood, but I also know a lot of people whose work are inspired by either their fathers or their children. And there's an element of conversation, you know, around fatherhood that inspires men to be better fathers in the lives of their children and give the practitioners and researchers in the space a new understanding on elements of men and the minds of men to think about when they're doing their research. But this young man right here, Kwame Alexander, is blowing up the literary scene around the world, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Um, He is a poet, educator, producer, and the number one New York Times bestselling author of 36 books, including his newest book, The Door of No Return, An American Story, also becoming Muhammad Ali, um, that he co-authored with James Patterson. Oh, no, you did that one. Rebound was with James Patterson, right? No, you were right. You were right the first time. Okay. Which was shortlisted for the prestigious UK Carnegie Medal. Um, he has won all kinds of awards. Google the brother like the young folks say. If you really want to know him, just type Kwame Alexander. The next 20 pages after the next page is going to be nothing but him. It ain't going to be no Kwame Alexander from Missouri that's going to come up, you know, whose child is, you know. Stop it. Valid. Stop it. <laughs> Google him. Kwame, how you doing, sir? I'm great. Now that I get to see you, it's been a minute since we've been in the same room. So I'll, I'll I'll accept this. This is beautiful. Yeah, no, no, no. And I, I got so much I want to talk to you about. I want to lay a little bit into your newest book. I want to lay a little bit into um, just the space that you're in today, right? And talk about some of the things that I've been involved with with you um, and some of the things that you're thinking about in the future. Um, but I sure. want to um, bring something up. Do you remember, I was telling Jessica, one of our good friends, um, I interviewed her a few weeks ago, and I was talking about this time where I came, we came to D.C., and we were in D.C. at the same time, and we were having lunch. And I can't remember, I think Jessica was there, Tracy was there. I can't remember who else came to that lunch. And you and I were in the bar. It was in a bar, and we were having this conversation. No one else had gotten there. It was just you and I. It was right before the New York Times or the New York Post ran that article, that feature on you. And you and I were sitting at the bar, and I said, what is it that you're trying to do? Um, and mm-hmm. you said, I want to be an author, and that's all I want to be. You was like, I'm, I don't want to do all this other stuff that I do. I just want to write. And I said, well, then that's what you're going to do because you just spoke life to your life. 
Um, and that is oftentimes. And I remember going home and I sent you a picture of me sitting on the couch reading that newspaper. I don't know if you remember that picture. I still have that picture that I sent to you. And man, I just need you to know I am so proud of you. So, so um, proud of you and that there are many people. And I love seeing um, men, particularly black men, doing what is doing what they've been what they've been called to do. Um, George Frazier, who oversees FrazierNet, I used to do some work with him back in the day, and he used to always say to me, Kenny, um, when you find what you love, don't be ashamed, don't be ashamed of doing good and doing well at the same time. That is how it's supposed to be. That is how you know you are in your groove when you're doing good and doing well at the same time. So congratulations for all of the awards and accolades and success that you're having. And may it be tenfold moving forward. Um, man, I appreciate that. You, man, you gonna make my head just blow up. <laughs> I'm glad I got a 14 year old daughter who keeps me grounded. <laughs> In her mind, I am the uncoolest dude on earth. Cause that's how teenagers roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I got a four, I just got mine just turned 14. And so the youngest wow. one 14, and I got a 15-year-old boy in my house, which is a whole nother conversation. But I start off uh -huh. all my interviews with this, Kwame, and I want you to answer this question because it leaves and lends context to the conversation. And that is, what's your daddy's story? Um, both as a father and as a son. What's your daddy's story? So I just wrote my first adult book. It's a memoir, and it's called Why Fathers Cry, Cry at Night. It comes out in May. And Kenneth, as I was writing it, I wrote a lot about what I learned about love from watching my father. I never saw my father hold my mother's hand. I never saw my parents kiss. I never saw them have this thing we call, I know they loved each other. I mean, they had us, me and my <laughs> sisters, but my father wasn't that kind of dude. He wasn't a romantic. My mother was a romantic. I mean, she just carried herself in that way. And so I just wonder how did they stay together? Like how, maybe in the wee hours of the night, <laughs> you know, when we weren't around, but I always wanted to know how this man loved. And so I remember, Kenneth, when I was a sophomore in college at Virginia Tech, I had come home once on spring break. And I liked to, I, I was a big dawdler. I like to be in places, finding stuff, discovering stuff. And so I remember I came home and I was in my attic in Virginia and I was looking for whatever. I don't know what I was looking for in particular, but I discovered a box of um, records. LPs, 30, uh, um, vinyl, mm -hmm. and they were all jazz records. It was, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, Live in Berlin. It was Duke Ellington, Take the A-Train. You know, it was Miles Davis, Sketches in Spain. It was Ornette Coleman. It was all these jazz records. And I really never listened to jazz. But at the top of each record, in a stencil, was written Property of the Big Owl. The Big Al was my dad's nickname when he was in the Air Force. Turns out my dad used to collect jazz records 
And so I decided, okay, maybe this is a way for me to get to know my dad, the guy who made me read the dictionary, the guy who, who, who fussed at me all the time, the guy who never really smiled, the guy who was a workaholic, the guy who never said, I love you. Maybe this is a way for me to get to know him. So I, I borrowed the records, Kenneth. I didn't steal them. I borrowed them, <laughs> took them back to college, bought a used record player, and listened to I've Got You Under My Skin So Deep in the Heart, You're Really a Part of Me. I listened to you know, Ella Fitzgerald sing Bewitched, Bewildered, and Bothered. I listened to Nancy Wilson sing Save Your Love for Me. I listened to all these beautiful jazz songs, and what I discovered is that my dad was probably a lover if he listened to this kind of music. Because mm. it just made me feel a certain way. And that was the moment where I actually sort of fell in love with my dad. I mean, I always loved him, but that's where I fell in love and said, this cat is actually pretty cool. Mm. So so my dad's story is real complicated and and in the sense that it was it was full of a lot of this thing that I didn't understand that that was so far from love, I thought. And it evolved into me just sort of, you know, falling in love with this man. And, and of course, now my dad is 80 years old and he swears I owe him royalty payments for all my books <laughs> because he's the one who taught me how to write and maybe read the dictionary. <laughs> wow. So what's the story as a father? Kenneth, I mean, you, you, my guy, so I want to be a little vulnerable, but it's, it's all, it's tough. It's tough to talk about stuff because, you know, I have two daughters. I have two daughters. I have a 31 year old and I have a 14 year old mm. and my 31 year old and I, you know, when I, when her mother and I got divorced when she was four back in 1995, she, um, I, she, I became a every other weekend dad. So I saw her every other weekend and it was cool. It wasn't what I, I didn't get to see her every day, but I saw her every other weekend. And so when she turned 15, she and her mother had a big falling out. And her mother called me and said, she needs to come live with you. And in my mind, and, and so in my mind, I was screaming for joy. Yes, I get to live with my daughter like these last three years of high school and help shape and mold her every day. But I didn't want to be, I didn't want to oversell it because I, I wanted to make sure it was going to happen. So I was like, yeah, we can discuss it, yeah. Next thing I knew, she was at my house with the suitcases and the luggage. They had literally had a falling out and it was around my daughter's sexuality. Mm. Uh, and so my, my ex-wife, two weeks later said, okay, she can come back. And my, and my daughter said, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go back. So, so she lived with me until she went to college and then she came home and she, she became my daughter on a daily basis. And it was really excellent and just a good feeling. And, and fast forward about 15 years and we had a falling out. And it was real interesting because it brought up some of those issues of abandonment that she had never dealt with around her mother essentially kicking her out. And so my 14-year-old daughter 
I am, I, I find myself constantly trying to make sure that I'm doing everything in my power to not repeat some of the mistakes I may have made with my older daughter. Mm -hmm. And I, so I have a lot of baggage around that. I love this kid so much. I love both of my daughters so much. So, so what, 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 what does it mean for me as a dad today? You know, I, I, I am trying to be the best, you know, version of myself, trying to learn all the lessons and trying to make sure I prepare, you know, this, this 14 year old girl who's five foot 11. Mm. And, and so, yeah, that's, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely answers the question. I, um, uh, Malik Yoba, a good friend of mine, and yeah. I interviewed him some months ago, and he revealed to me in a conversation that he had written his book. And I was like, oh, cool, what is it about? He was like, oh, it's about my relationship with my, with my dad. And so he starts telling me the story and um, he goes, oh, I'm going to send you the manuscript. And I was like, all right. So before he sent it to me, I said, you know, who's writing the forward of your book? And he says, man, he said, I ain't even given that any thought. He's like, you know what? Since you asked, you. He's like, I need you to write the forward of, of, of my book. And I was like, seriously? I was like, you don't know nobody else. Like, you know, all the high level A people you know. You asking me, he said, nah, I think you're the right person to write this book. I'll write this forward. And so he sent me the manuscript. I read it and I was like, oh. And then I had to read it again because I had to process it a second time when I read it again. But I wrote this forward and in writing this forward, it raised up something similar to what you were just talking about for me, for 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 what you were just talking about for me. And it's mm -hmm. the same thing that was in him. And what he, in his book, what he was doing and talking about is his relationship with his dad was so um, <clears throat> good at sometimes, bad at other times, conflictual, I guess is the best right. way to yeah. describe it. Yeah. But he realized that in his daily life, he was often quoting his father. Dig it. Right? And so I wrote this forward and I titled it, even though I know forwards don't have titles, but I wrote the title because it inspired me to write this book around the same subject matter. And it's called Echoes of the Father. Mm. And mm. it is about how in our lives, our fathers echo in our lives when we're doing things and it's like, Hey, 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 Do, you know, I'm doing this, 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 and, and the echo when it comes back is your father's voice coming back. It's your right. voice going out, but your father's echo coming back, mm. impacting mm. your life. So when you think about your work and the work that you're doing, how often is your fatherhood echoing in your work? True. Well, the, I mean, that's it. That's it, man. I mean, on a... On one level, is in most of my speeches, at some point, I will talk about how my dad was always traveling. He went, and I couldn't wait for him to not be home because I knew I wasn't going to get fussed at. And so he, he, he would come to my speeches and he'd say, you know, you're going you're gonna to get it back. You're going to get it back because that, 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 that ain't happened like that. Mm -hmm. And so recently, my 14-year-old has been like... Um, 
well, you weren't here. So you, why are you asking me? You should have been here. Mm. Dude, I'm getting it back. So when you think about echo of sort of what I lived, what I thought I lived as a child and how it reflected and how I talked about it. And now what my daughter is saying, I feel like, man, I am, I am my father. I am out here traveling, doing the same thing that I claimed he did. Mm. And I'm getting it back. Now, on another level, Kenny, my father was a Baptist minister. So I would sit in the balcony and watch him preach. But really, I would watch the response from the audience, the congregation, and how they were just hanging on his every word. And he was just, he was a powerful speaker. He knew how to put words together. And I was like, how does he know all that scripture? Mm. How does he remember? Like, and so I would, and then I finally made the connection. I would see him, you know, Saturday night in his study writing his speeches. You know, I'd see him studying and doing what he had to do. And so when I get on stage, when I'm talking about a book, I am preaching. I am, I am, I am embodying all of that ministry, that Baptist, that Baptist preacherdom. Like that's a, that's a strong echo. I am my dad. Mm-hmm. I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are two ways that I see myself or my father echoing in my life. There are certainly countless other examples, but those are two things that come to mind, man. Yeah. A few years ago, um, Kwame um, introduced me to the experience of my life. Um, mm. That was going to Africa. Um, yeah. it has was that your first time? That was my first time. It was 2014, I believe it was now. And that um, changed my life. It changed my perspective on how I see myself, um, how I see our people, how I see our community. And I'm often quoting things that developed in my mind from that experience and then the subsequent experiences after that. And I also see that echoing in your work. The motherland is echoing in your work. And we're gonna talk about the library in a moment but I really want you to talk about how your experiences in Africa has echoed in your life and now is coming through your work. And I just, you know, we'll come back to this as well. I'm listening. I'm not a big reader. I don't read, read. I'm an audible person. I like listening. So I just finished listening to Door of No Return on Audible in my car. Yo, wasn't he amazing? Goodness. And I was just like the... His voice was like music. I'm listening to it and I'm like, I'm, I'm like hanging on every word, every accent, every just like the voices of our people and the accents of our people are really is music in motion when you hear it. Right. And right. so how was that experience? How is the inspiration of Africa playing itself out in the work that you're doing today? Well, I've been 11 times. You know, the first time I went was in 2012 in March with the Queen Mother, just she and I. And then in September, I went with David and Renee. You know, these are all writer activists that you know, Tracy, Lindsay, and Ed. And that was, 2012 was sort of the beginning of my homecoming. I thought, I'm going back to Ghana 
to find my roots. Mm. My people are from Ghana. Later on, I would find out they're not from Ghana. They're from Sierra Leone, but still, <laughs> I was trying to find my roots. And so in going back to Africa to sort of reconnect with my people, what I discovered is the food, the red red, the tilapia, <laughs> the jollof. You know, I discovered, you know, the language, Madasi, Etisang. You know, I discovered the beautiful black skin. I discovered that there were days, maybe weeks, sometimes where I go, I wouldn't see a white person. Mm. I discovered, I discovered the, 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 you know, the water, you know, where I, where I believe the blues came from. We were taken from our land across these, this ocean, not knowing where we were going to end up and what was going to await us. And the only thing we knew for certain was the, the color of the water and the color of the sky, the blues. I feel like that's where the blues came from. I talked about that with Nikki when she came with us that one time. Um, but Ghana, those 11 visits have made me feel like it was like this, it, it became a home for me. It became a place that I felt, you know, comfortable in and, and that I got to know people and that I, I fell in love with and that, you know, my family, and so it, I, you talked about at the very beginning of this conversation, you know, being called. I never knew what that meant. My dad, my, my grandfather, my uncles talked about that as it related to religion. As a child, I never knew what that meant. But these two books that I've written about Ghana, Solo and The Door of No Return, I didn't set out to write those like I've done every other book. I was called to write them, you know. I, I, I felt like these were things that I was supposed to do. I had been given this opportunity to walk amongst these people. And so I wanted to show them, I wanted to show the world who they were beyond the stereotypes. You know, I wanted to get outside of the, the narrative, the mis misperceptions and misconceptions and really tell a story about, about our people and, we are not defined, Kenny, by the things that have happened to us, the tragic things that have happened to our people. We are not defined by those things. Those things happen to us. We are defined by the things we did, the things we were, the people who we, who we were. We are defined by our humanity. And I wanted to write books that focused on that. Mm. You mentioned Nikki Giovanni. Um... She's, oh my goodness, I don't even know have words to describe her. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask you to describe her and what she means to your life. Yeah, my, well, in a nutshell, I've known her since 1987. So you're talking about 35 years and she just retired. I was in her first class in 87 at Virginia Tech and I was at her retirement party, um, which was last month a month or so ago. And we, our relationship started off pretty rocky because I was an arrogant teenager who thought he knew everything about poetry and black people, <laughs> you know? And, and she was Nikki Giovanni and, and I challenged the heck out of her and, and she pushed back and, and it reflected in my grades and it didn't sit well with me. And so over the course of 35 years, that relationship 
you know, evolved into a mother-son relationship. So there's a lot of in-between, obviously, for us to go from, you know, this, this 87 to 2022. And I talk about it in the new book, Why Fathers Cry at Night. But the bottom line is she, she taught me not only how to write, but she taught me that I got to be interesting and I got to be interested in being a willing participant in life, which means I got to say yes to opportunities. Nikki was at the table, Kenny, in 2012, in February, Black History Month, at Reagan National Airport when the Queen Mother asked me to go to Ghana for the first time. And before I could say anything, Nikki said, yes, he will go. Wow. So just you talk about a coming of a full circle. Um, the last thing I'll say, and this really sort of embodied what I'm trying to say about Nikki. My mother passed away in 2017, as you know. And Nikki, who doesn't go to funerals because she's not a funeral person, showed up at the funeral. And I was really shocked. And I was like, you didn't have to come. And it was the first time in 30 years or so she had ever cursed it, cursed at me. And she said, why the, would you think I wouldn't be here? You needed to know you still have a mother. Wow. So, so that's, that's our relationship, man. It's yeah, a mother son thing. She's such a quiet spirited, but powerful present kind of woman. Like, look no, like hey, Kenny, I don't know if you can say quiet unless you use it in a metaphorical way. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quiet. <laughs> it's like a quiet storm, right? It's like you don't right. see it coming, right. but you know it's coming. You know it has you power. Go. Um, you know right. not to mess with it, but you're so mesmerized by it that you can't move. Uh, right. That's her. That's when I'm right. not knowing or familiar with her full body of work, but knowing who she was that was my first impression of her. Like, you know, where you see that, um, that woman in your neighborhood that, you know, everybody said, don't mess with Miss Johnson. <laughs> you know, that right, <laughs> right, right. Johnson. Right, right, right. So glad you brought up your mom. Um, I also had the pleasure of going um, to Ghana with Kwame as he opened up the Barbara E. Alexander Memorial Library and Health Clinic in Ghana. Probably one of the more proudest moments I had of you, watching you do that um, and, and, and creating a real monument to your mom. Why was that important for you to do? It wasn't even about creating a monument for her. It was about me trying to, to be true to the vision that not only I'd had, but all of us had had since the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, David and Ed and Renee and Tracy and Lindsay and I sat at Lady Delphine's table in in Legon, Ghana, East Legon, Ghana, we were up till four or five in the morning drinking Ghanaian beer or mm -hmm. something. Well, I forgot what it was called, but, and eating Ghanaian food. And we talked about building a library and how important it was to bring books to this community. So we talked about that in 2012. 
So, so it was always, that was always at the center of my, you know, my dreams, wanting to make that come true in this, in this, this, this village called Conco. And so when it didn't happen in 2000, I want to say 17, because I had arrived with 20, 22 librarians and the library wasn't done. And I had raised 40. When I say I, I mean us, because it was a lot of us who did this work. Um, we had raised $40,000. And so the library wasn't done. And I remember talking to the, the, the mayor and some of the elders and asking why wasn't it done and, and really getting, you know, it was a wake up call. They were like, well, you know, we could, I said, I said, I said, why wasn't the library built? I said, did you not want it? And he said, well, eh, we could have used a health clinic. And Kenny, that's where I, I missed the boat. I never asked them if they wanted a library. I went in with my sort of Western sort of intentions of trying to do right. And I never, I never worked in the spirit of, you know, as we know in Kwanzaa on the, um, on the, on the third day of Kwanzaa Ujima collective work and responsibility. You know, I never did that. And so we came back in 2018 and opened the library and health clinic. Of course, I got the message then. Um, but and my mom had been passed away a year and somebody had said, well, you've done all this work. Are you going to call it the Kwame Alexander Library? And I was like, no, I'm not going to call it that. And it, it was just... You know, it felt right to name it after this woman who had taught me to use my words in a way, you know, that I actually enjoyed and, and relished and engaged with, as opposed to my dad, of course, who forced me to read. She made reading and writing fun. So it made like perfect sense to, to name it after her. And I was just so blessed that, that everyone was on board with that. Yeah, no, you know, one of the other beautiful things that you did that year um, that that inspired me as well. I keep telling you, bro, you don't know how much you've impacted my life. But, excuse me, you had your daughter with you that year that inspired me to take my daughter to Africa. Right. And I can't tell you how much that has impacted her life. It was like a transformation. Really? Like an immediate rites of passage to her empowerment to be able to do exactly what she wants to do, how she wants to do it, and in her own way, being inspired wow. by <clears throat> seeing particularly the other girls in the village and seeing what was more specific, <clears throat> excuse me, that entrepreneurship spirit. She came back really? with that. She quit college after one year because it was burning in her that she right. did not want to go and work for somebody who was going to sign her check. Dig it. And Dig it, it took me a minute to get my head around that, that she right. wasn't going to be a sports medical doctor anymore, that she wanted right. to start her own business. I didn't understand it. But when she talked to me about why she was doing it, and she said, what I learned in Africa is that there are no excuses. Mm. You don't make mm. excuses for 
who you're destined to be. You just do it. So I wanted to ask you from your daughter's perspective, did you see a change in her as a result of her going to Africa? Well, it's a great question, man. Let me backtrack a little bit and just say that your daughter is her father's child. Mm. Like our kids do what we do, not what we say. Her father is a consummate entrepreneur when you really break it down. So why wouldn't she be? And I think to answer your question, it was much larger than her visit to Africa for me. Um, I have seen this, my daughter approach life in a way that is obvious I am rubbing off on her. Her mother is rubbing off on her. These experiences that we've given her are rubbing off on her. So yes, I mean, the other day I was picking her up from school and she said, dad, I want you to hear, I want you to read some of, I want you to listen to some of my notes I've been taking. I was like, all right. And she started reading me notes from her notebook on the origin of law and justice. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Two pages of notes. She reads me and she's going back, going deep into it. And then I say, after she finishes, I'm like, wow, I'm asking her questions. And she's like, did you listen to everything I said? What are five things you learned, dad? So I tell her five things I learned. And I say, so what class is this? And she says, oh no, this isn't a class. I'm studying the law. And so just that kind of audacity and that kind of, you know, I can do, I can, I can do anything. Like anything is possible. I'm 14 years old. My dad has shown me that anything is possible. Um, and I think going to Ghana is a part of that. And I, 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 would, I, would, I would posit that it's all the experiences and everything I try to do. And even though she gives me a hard time when I travel, oh, you going again? I, I see the impact of the work that I'm doing in this world and what it's having on her. That's how I would answer that question. And now I can't hear you, Kenny. So in Ghana, on the Cape Coast, um, in the castle, um, where um, Africans were um, shackled and taken from their land, taken to America, is a door. Um, And above that door is a sign. um, And it says, the door of no return. It is the most... um, Man, when you see the sign, it just creates all kinds of emotion for you. Your new book is entitled The Door of No Return, An American Story. What's the inspiration in that book and what should readers expect when they read it? Roots, we all saw Roots. Roots was the, the subtitle that Alex Haley had for Roots was the saga of an American family. That story, he told that story and he told it, he told it well. I wanted to write the saga of an African family. That was my goal. I wanted to write about, I wanted to write about what it was like for a kid growing up in a place 
um, in a village with coconuts, living by the river, eating cola nuts, which are disgusting. Mm. Loving red red, which is my favorite dish. <laughs> you know, having a crush, going to school. I wanted to, we don't we don't know that. And and I, I posit that our history, man, did, did not it, it did not begin in 1619. That's the middle of our story. It's not the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's it's we gotta know it, but I wanted to write about a beginning. And so that's where the door of no return, that's where that book came from. I wanted to write about a beginning. And, you know, it's not until page 302 that, you know, Europeans are introduced to the story. Mm-hmm. And so that was intentional. This book, I didn't want I, it wasn't centered on slavery. It wasn't centered on what white people did to us. It wasn't centered on all that. I just wanted to write a different story. Right. Those stories are valuable, but I wanted to write about the before. Man, it is such a beautiful. I'm, you know, I will um, encourage people buy the book because we want to increase sales, <clears throat> but then get it on Audible. Um, you gotta listen. You gotta to get it. it. Well, Kenny, when I was listening to it, I don't listen to my audio books. I never listened to them, but somebody was like, you got to listen to it. And somebody I trusted. And so I listened to it. And I tell you, I'm listening to this book, man. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Kenny, I said, who wrote this book? It's amazing. <laughs> For a minute, I just had to pinch myself. Wait a minute, I wrote it. Because he just brings, he brings a whole nother level to it. Mm-hmm. What's your greatest, for you, what's your greatest accomplishment to date? You know, I think we would both say our, our children. Mm. When I when I see when I see the video, I don't know if KJ is still playing ball, mm-hmm. but when I when I see what where he started <laughs> and where he is now, it's it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal the work that he has put in, you know, and that you have you know guided him through, you and your wife. But I think the greatest accomplishment is 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 definitely my my daughters if i were to say you know greatest accomplishment from a professional or a career standpoint it is um what is it kenny um in the past five years i have created a space where i've given other authors an opportunity to get published so I've collaborated with a lot of authors. You know, I had an imprint and published other authors. That's my goal, man. Like, I can't write every book. And while I have a little bit of leverage and power, or wh- whatever that is, I want to be able to use it. Because it's no, it's no point in having it if you can't use it. And so I would say that if that's an accomplishment, then that would be the greatest one. So I would ask you to tell people where the where to buy the book, but you can buy the book from almost anywhere that has books. Um, Rudy on the corner out of his Cadillac probably has copies of it in the back of his car. That's just how available the book is. But tell people how to get in touch with you. Yeah, um, KwameAlexander.com is the website, but I'm on, I'm on Instagram uh, at KwameAlexander. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't know how much longer. Cause this cat is a little crazy, 
but at Kwame Alexander. So you can find me in those three places. Kwame, thank you so much, bro. I love you to death. And as my good friend, um, Bishop Ferg always said, there's absolutely nothing you could do about it. Um, uh, and I don't want to do anything about it. Thank you for having me on the podcast, brother. Appreciate Absolutely. You. And thanks, everybody, for joining I Am Dad podcast. I'll see you next Sunday um, throughout the week. God bless. See you soon. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child... I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.